Okay, friends, let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Today, we're going to cover verses 1 to 11, and we're going to look at the scandalous incident where Jesus was anointed before his final Passover meal. We're going to see how this story ends with Judas reacting to a few of these hard sayings of Jesus. But before we get to that, before we get to Mark chapter 14, we should probably review where we've been coming from in the gospel of Mark so far. All the way back at the beginning of last year, we started on this incredible short gospel. Mark is the shortest gospel of the four gospels in the Bible, probably written around 55 AD. It's kind of like an action gospel. It's almost like Mark is a, like a movie producer or a director, and he's just jumping from scene to scene and giving us, giving us a picture of the life and teachings of Jesus. In fact, let's go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and here's what Mark wrote. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So all throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of like Mark is bringing us on a journey along with the disciples of Jesus, and we're getting to see who Jesus really is, even as the disciples are having their eyes opened. Now remember, Jesus picked ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collectors, people that we can relate to. So it's not like they had a leg up on kind of this whole idea of who the Messiah was going to be. In fact, they were Jewish. And so they had this expectation that the Messiah would be a warrior king, kind of like David. You know, they had this expectation that the Messiah was going was gonna to lead the people of Israel to this new place of prominence, to this new, you know, era of national glory. And of course, that would mean that Jesus would end up destroying the Romans or at least setting the Jewish people free from the Romans. Now, I bring that up because we're going to see it again as we open up Mark chapter 14. Judas is one of Jesus's 12 disciples. Of course, we all know who Judas was. Judas is a guy that ends up betraying Jesus. But in today's lesson, we're going to see what I would call the turning point in these 11 verses, we're going to see probably why Judas ended up betraying Jesus. I personally believe that Judas was probably a good guy at some point. I think that he didn't you know, start following Jesus thinking he would betray Jesus. I think Judas betrayed Jesus because he didn't know how to handle some of the hard sayings of Jesus, some of the hard teachings of Jesus. He didn't know what to do with some of the stuff that Jesus has said probably over the first 13 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, but especially in the 11 verses we're going to look at today. Now, before we get into that, let me just ask you a question. How do you handle the hard sayings of Jesus? You know, maybe you're sitting there at church and the preacher is preaching something and you don't know if you like how that sounds. Or maybe you're at home reading the Bible, you're reading something in scripture, and you're like, ah, I don't know what I think about this. I think we're all a little bit tempted to go our own way. We're all tempted to follow our own opinions and feelings rather than God's opinion, which is the truth. In fact, that's our definition of sin in the Pursuit series. We talk about that in lesson four. Sin is going your own way. It's elevating your thoughts, your opinions above God's thoughts, God's opinions, otherwise known as the truth. Now, I want to focus in on a few hard sayings of Jesus, 
and get you to sort of react to this. Maybe later on, you'll talk about this with a small group or with a mentor, and you can really have a conversation and be honest about it. But how about this hard saying? You can't serve both God and money, right? So Jesus said that. Jesus actually had a lot to say about finances. Now, this is a really practical thing to say, but so many followers of Jesus, so many churchgoers, and I know this because I'm a pastor of a church, and I know that giving in general is going down, down, down. Now, look, I'm not trying to throw any one particular person under the bus. I'm just saying it's really easy to read something like that in the Bible and say, I don't know. I don't know if I want to agree with Jesus's view on finances when it comes to being generous toward the church. See, by default, most of us are generous toward ourselves and we're stingy toward other people. And Jesus tells us to be generous toward other people. Jesus tells us to be generous toward the church. Jesus basically says that our money isn't ours. It's his. And we're just stewards of it. We're just managing it. So on a practical level, if you totally accept that hard saying of Jesus, then you'll be a good giver. You'll probably happily give 10% of your income, maybe even more to the kingdom of heaven, to your local church, to ministries like Pursue God or missionaries you support or whatever. So the truth is, though, that very few Christians, quote unquote Christians around the nation and probably around the world, give anywhere close to 10% or even 5%. So clearly, there are a lot of quote unquote followers of Jesus who have a hard time with Jesus's statement that you can't serve both God and money. We're going to see today that Judas was one of those guys. Okay, how about this next hard saying of Jesus? I am God. I mean, Jesus said it all over the place that he is God. The, Jesus's view of his own divinity just becomes clearer and clearer as we have read through the Gospel of Mark, and it's true for the other Gospels as well. And so it's pretty obvious that that Jesus believed that he was God. Now, for most Christians, that's not a problem. But there might be some of you out there who are really wrestling with that and trying, trying to understand this hard theological saying of Jesus. Maybe you're coming from a Mormon background. Maybe you're coming from an atheist background. Maybe you're just a, you know, like an intelligent person who's trying to understand how Jesus could be both human and divine at the same time. That's called the hypostatic union. Maybe you're just saying, I don't know how to wrap my head around this. Well, this is a really important thing to believe because if if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you cannot be saved. So anyway, the question is, how do you handle that hard saying of Jesus that he is God? We're going to see kind of in a roundabout way how Judas handled that. And then one more hard saying today that I want to challenge you to think about. Jesus basically said, I am the only way to heaven. Now, that is a very, very exclusive thing to say in a world where there are hundreds and thousands of religions. And, you know, I think the average American would say something like, you know, there are many paths to heaven. I mean, it just, it just makes you feel mean or sort of exclusive or maybe even arrogant, right? To, to think that you could say that there's only one way to heaven, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that there's no other way to heaven except through Jesus. And yet these are all things that Jesus said. 
So if you're reading your Bible or watching a YouTube video or listening to a preacher talk about this, you, it might rub you the wrong way if you kind of tend a little bit more toward universalism. And on top of that, kind of the pathway to heaven through Jesus is quite frankly offensive to a lot of self-made people. And a lot of Americans are like that. So right, Jesus's message is the only way to heaven is by trusting that what I did for you is enough. Now that kind of rubs against the American psyche that says, I want to blaze my own trail. I want to do my own thing. I want to sort of pull myself up by my bootstraps and I want to earn my way to heaven. So it's actually pretty offensive to some people, the message of the, of the Bible. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's foolish, that it, seemed, it seems dumb to philosophers to think that Jesus did all the work for us and we can do nothing for it. That offends some people. That's called the offense of the cross. And so if that's you, how do you handle a hard saying like that? Again, we're going to see how Judas handled these kinds of difficult sayings. All right, so let's get to the text. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1 and 2. It says, it was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. I'll explain those in just a second. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or people may riot. Now, the reason not during the Passover is because there were a ton of people in and around Jerusalem because of the Passover. It was kind of a big deal. It was a big festival. And here's what that festival was about. It dated all the way back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with the story, just really quickly, that was where, you know, God called Moses to lead his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. That's the whole story where, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but they were supposed to put blood over the doorposts and God was going to bring these plagues on Pharaoh, but he was going to spare the people of Israel and they were going to be able to pass out. They were going to be able to you know, the, the angel of death passed over the Israelite doors because they had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. By the way, do you notice there's going to be a lot of symbolism in this? Jesus is fulfilling all of the symbolism, and we're going to get to that over these next few weeks. So that night, the Israelites escaped, and, you know, they were chased by the Egyptians, and they made it through the Red Sea, and they eventually make, make it to the promised land 40 years later. So that whole story starts on, on the night of Passover, and that's what the Passover festival for the Jewish people was all about. It commemorated that night when they were told to hurry up and go and get out of Dodge, and you're going to finally be able to get to the promised land. Now, there were three key elements in the Passover celebration. Number one, the sacrificial lamb, right? So, you know, thousands of years earlier, the Israelites sacrificed a lamb, and that was the blood that they put over the doorpost. Well, now, in Jesus's day, they're celebrating this. Families would select a lamb without blemish. They would sacrifice it, and they would roast it. The, the blood of the lambs, remember, was applied to the doorposts of the homes in way back in the Exodus story. This was part of the tradition on Passover as well. And all of that symbolized God's protection, right? So they're celebrating that fateful night, that wonderful night for them, the fateful night for the Egyptians. Now, the second element in the Passover celebration was unleavened bread. So if you, I don't know if you remember, but 
back in the story of the Exodus, they didn't have time to, you know, bake leavened bread because they were in a hurry. They had to get going. And so they, they ate unleavened bread. And then the tradition carried on into Jesus's day. And they would celebrate with not just a sacrificial lamb, but with unleavened bread. Now, this was called matzah, or or it was also called the bread of affliction. Now, the third element in the whole Passover celebration was wine. And so there were four cups of wine that were going to be consumed during the Passover meal. And we'll, we'll save that for next week, because next week, we're going to explore the Last Supper of Christ, and it was actually the Passover Supper. And so that means that they were using the unleavened bread. They went through these four different cups that were traditional, and each one of these cups had important significance. And we'll talk about that next week because I want to show you the connection between those cups and what Jesus was saying to his disciples during the Last Supper, because Jesus is fulfilling all of these incredible symbols and metaphors, Jesus himself is going to fulfill that. So we'll save all that for next week. But for now, suffice it to say that this was a couple days before Passover, and this is the context for everything that we're reading in Mark 14. Back to the text, verse 3. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with an, a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Now, let's stop there because there's a lot of sort of background information that I think you need to have in order to really understand the powerful significance of what this woman did just now. So first of all, let's talk about the characters in the story. Now, if you want to read John's version of this story, open your Bible to John chapter 12. I'll read a little bit from there in a little bit. But John 12 apparently is telling the same story as Mark 14. Now, Mark doesn't identify any of the characters except for Simon, but John does. John identifies the woman as Lazarus's sister, Mary. If you remember that story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, Mary and Martha, his two sisters, were really sad about that. So, so this is Mary who's doing the alabaster jar thing. And it's, by the way, then, it's likely that Simon, this guy who used to be a leper, Simon is potentially Simon is their father. So here this guy, Simon, is probably the father of Mary and Martha. And my guess is that Jesus probably had healed this man at some previous point, even though we don't have that in the Gospel of Mark. Anyway, so those are the characters. And I do think it's interesting that Mark doesn't name them. He keeps most of them anonymous. And we'll talk about why here in a second. The second thing I want you to understand is the kind of the interruption that this would have been for Jesus. In fact, I want to read this from the Pillar New Testament commentary. It says, as a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by women unless they were serving food. Now, don't get all frustrated. I I know you read, you hear something like that through the lens of modern day America, and and you, you get upset probably. But Again, this is just the reality of Jewish culture, not just Jewish culture. This is the reality of ancient culture. 
Back to the commentary, it says that Mark has often reminded us, however, that societal and even Jewish values are not necessarily to be equated with Jesus's values. In this instance, the woman's intrusion is commended as a demonstration of faith. So before you jump down Jesus's throat, it's really interesting to keep in mind the background to this, that this woman you know, a lot of people would have been offended. A lot of men, let's say, would have been offended by this quote unquote intrusion, this interruption, but Jesus wasn't as we're going to see in his response. But here's the biggest thing. Okay. The biggest thing in this section of scripture in verse three is, is the extravagance. See this perfume jar, remember Mary breaks open the jar and pours it on Jesus's head. This was probably a family heirloom and, and the Bible says that she, she smashed it. That means, that means it probably was corked in such a way that you couldn't just like unscrew it and use a little bit of it and screw it. Like if she was going to anoint Jesus, she was going to have to use it all. And this was incredibly valuable. This was really expensive stuff. You know, and Mary didn't work. She wasn't like independently wealthy. So it's again, it's likely this was a family heirloom. And so think about the extravagance that, that Mary is, is spending it all on Jesus. And to me, this hints at our first hard saying of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. So my question for you, I mean, just even as you think about this story, before we even tell the rest of it, just I want to just pause for a second and ask you this question. How extravagant are you toward Jesus? And you know, the, the simplest way to answer that question, I know it's easy to like fool yourself into answering the question, but honestly, the simplest way to answer that question is just to do something like this. Make a list of the top 10 things that you spend your money on, on a, on a monthly basis. And where does, where does the kingdom of God rank on there? You know, the check that you write to church or to missionaries or whatever, like add all that up, you know, add up your mortgage, add up everything you spend on food, add up everything you spend on entertainment, Netflix and all that stuff, add up, add up all these different things, put them into categories like entertainment, mortgage, car payment, you know, food, cell phone, whatever, and, and make one of the categories God. And, and here's my, I always love to ask people this. And I don't know that they, they like hearing it, but whatever. I'm going to ask it anyway, okay? Where does God rank on that list? Is he even on the list? Like for so many people, he doesn't even make their top 10. Let me say it another way. So many people spend more money on Netflix in a month than they spend on the kingdom of heaven in a month. So many more, so many people spend more money on their iPhone plan in a month than on the kingdom of heaven. So let me, let me read Jesus's hard saying again. You can't serve both God and money. How could, you, how could you say that God ranks at the top of your list? How could you say that you're serving God and not money or, or the stuff money buys, right? How can you say that you serve God and not money and God doesn't show up on the top 10 or in the top five or in the top three? Now, I personally think it'd be really hard to say that. And it's one of the reasons that Tracy and I, my wife and I, we've really made a goal of ours to make the kingdom of heaven, make the God category in our budget, the highest one in our monthly budget. Now, it took us a while to get there, but we're there. 
And I, I challenge you to do that exercise and see where God ranks for you. How extravagant are you toward Jesus? Let's go back to the text, because we're going to see Judas's answer to that, in a sense. Mark 14, 4 through 5. It says, some of those at the table were indignant when they saw Jesus do that, or when they saw Mary do this to Jesus. They said, why waste such expensive perfume? It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded the woman harshly. So again, that's where we see how expensive this perfume was. Now, once again, Mark doesn't tell us who these people are. It just says that some of those at the table were indignant. Now, John gives us more insight. John chapter 12 tells us that Judas, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, was the guy who said this. And and by the way, John adds in that in verse 6, he says, not that Judas cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Now, I don't think that John probably knew that at the time, but I think in retrospect, as John's writing his gospel, he obviously looks back and realizes Judas's true motives, at least at this point in time. But again, I think it's interesting that Mark says that some at the table were indignant. So Mark says it could have been more than just Judas. John points out Judas, but Mark says that there were others. So I wonder who else? We don't know. Now look at the surface, I know what you're thinking. Well, they're indignant because it did seem wasteful. They're indignant because they could have sold, they could have sold this money or sold this perfume and given the money to the poor. But we're going to see Jesus's response to this, and we're going to see why Jesus apparently seems to be saying something that some people might be offended at. We're going to make sure to explain that here in just a second. But suffice it to say that Judas, that Judas had a disagreement with Jesus when it came to Jesus's perspective on finances, right? And some of you, some of you might feel the same way. Let's go back to the text. Verses six and seven, Jesus, here's his response. He says, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. Now, look, for some of you, this might be another hard saying of Jesus, because you might hear something like that, and you might say, did Jesus not care about the poor? No, that's not what it's saying. I want you to know. Jesus Jesus is not saying that the poor are not valuable. No, he talks about giving to the poor all the time. So you're missing the point if you think that he's denigrating the poor. He's not trying to do that. What he's doing is he's elevating himself. And see, this hints at our second hard saying of Jesus that we started with at the beginning of today's episode. Remember, Jesus said he was God. Jesus was revealing this to his disciples over time, including Judas. But here's the thing. Some of them maybe weren't buying it. See, if they knew Jesus's true identity, they would never have said, why are you wasting this perfume on Jesus. Because if they knew that Jesus was God, then they would know that that could never be a waste because God is more valuable than even the poor. 
So the fact that Judas would say something like this shows us that he wasn't bought into the true identity of Jesus just yet. Even though he'd been on a journey with him, he'd seen his miracles, he'd heard his teachings, he even saw Jesus exercise authority over nature itself, but still at this point, Judas isn't convinced. And maybe some of you have been on a journey much like that. Maybe you've been trying to figure out who Jesus is. Maybe that's why you're even listening to this podcast and you're not convinced yet. The truth is Jesus claim to be God is hard to swallow for a lot of people. It's hard for them to acknowledge that this story from the Bible, which again, from maybe a worldly point of view, seems far-fetched that, that God would come down and take on flesh and be born of a virgin and live a perfect sinless life and be fully God and fully man at the same time. Maybe for some of you, that's exactly the hard saying that you're struggling to accept. Anyway, back to the text, because we've got one more hard saying to explore, and it's connected to verses 8 and 9. Here's what Jesus says. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Now, let me take a minute to show you how this part of the passage hints at the third hard saying of Jesus. Remember, we've, we've covered his hard saying about money. We've covered his hard saying about his divinity. And the third hard saying, the third, the third thing that a lot of people have a hard time swallowing is when Jesus claimed that he was the only way to heaven. And I want, I want you to understand what was happening here when Mary anointed Jesus, when she poured this oil over his head. See, there were two major precedents for anointing in the Old Testament for Jewish people. You either anointed someone as part of a coronation ceremony, like anointing them as king, or you were anointing them for their burial. And here's what's interesting about this. This, I, I believe that when Mary was anointing Jesus, I believe that she was thinking about him being king. I think that's why she broke this expensive jar and poured it over his head, like showing that she believed the second thing, what we were talking about, that he is God, that he is king, that he is Messiah. I think that's what Mary had in mind when she did this. But it's interesting that Jesus, Jesus said that she anointed his body for burial. See, remember, Jesus knew that he was going to have to die, even though that didn't match up with the disciples' you know, perspective on the Messiah. Jesus has been telling them this, and he's literally, at this point, he's literally just a couple days away from it. So Jesus recognizes what Mary does to him is actually a double anointing. He recognizes that it is a coronation, but he's a different kind of king. He's the king of a kingdom that is not here on this earth. He's the king of a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, kingdom language Jesus used all the time in the gospel of Mark and in the other gospels. But Jesus also recognized that this would serve as his anointing for burial because, by the way, spoiler alert, later on in Mark 16, these women went to the tomb after Jesus died. They went to the tomb to anoint his body, right? But his body was gone. 
So this, in fact, would be Jesus's only burial anointing, and Jesus is pointing it out. Now, how does this connect to the hard saying of Jesus that I am the only way to heaven? Well, it's kind of like what I was saying earlier. He's the only way to heaven implies that it's through his death and resurrection and our trust in that, which doesn't even make sense to the modern mind, that we just have to trust in a person who's not us to save us. I mean, that's what this whole thing was about. Jesus was defying the expectations of all of the Jewish people as it related to what the Messiah was going to do, who he was going to be, and how he was going to save the world. He was going to save the world through his death and resurrection. And the anointing of Jesus right here in this story points to that. And I think Judas didn't buy it. I think that Judas, and in a sense, that this is just one more brick stacked up for Judas, that, that he was like, this is not who I was expecting. This isn't the kind of leader that I want to follow. I don't want to follow a leader who's going to have to die. And that leads us to the last two verses in our section for today, verses 10 and 11. It says, then Judas Iscariot, after all this, one of the 12 disciples went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard that he had come, and they promised to give him money. There's the money thing again. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. See, I think this passage is the turning point for Judas. The hard teachings of Jesus had finally pushed him over the edge. You can't serve God in money. Jesus would say. And Judas was trying to do just that. Judas was legalistic and holier than thou. Even toward Jesus, when Mary was so extravagant with the oil, Judas was maybe even offended that Jesus would call him out on his perspective on money, like some modern day people get offended. Jesus said, you can't serve God in money, and Judas didn't like it. And, and the second thing, you know, I am God. Jesus said, I am God. Judas, Judas didn't believe that. Obviously, Judas didn't believe that or he wouldn't have betrayed God. For whatever reason, Judas could not accept the divinity of Jesus. And again, I am the only way to heaven. What? By dying? I mean, Judas, if Judas was honest at this point, Judas would have said probably what Peter said a couple chapters earlier, like, no, never, I'll never let it happen. And Jesus said to Peter, you don't understand, you don't get it. Well, Judas didn't get it either, but he wasn't going to bring it to Jesus for correction. He was going to turn, he was going to betray Jesus, and he was going to play a part in Jesus's very death. Now, you probably know how the story ends for Judas, but just in case you don't, Judas ends up hanging himself out of guilt. He realizes he did the wrong thing. But this isn't about Judas. This is really about, about you and me. So let me go back to the question that I started with today. And again, for Judas, we know the answer now. The question is, how do you handle the hard sayings of Jesus, do they push you over the edge? 
where you want to betray Jesus, you turn your back on Jesus, or maybe you just stop investigating because the stuff he says about money, the stuff he says about his divinity, the stuff he says about the way of salvation, it's just too hard for you to stomach. It's too hard for you to accept. You would rather elevate your own opinion and feeling over God's opinion and feeling, which is the truth. And remember, that is called sin. The Bible calls that sin. And so I want to I leave you for today with one more verse from Mark chapter 1. We talked about this in the, in the first lesson of our Mark series. Jesus, Jesus announced this. He said, the time promised by God has come at last. And here we are, by the way, in Mark 14, and we're getting really close to it. But here's what Jesus said next back in Mark 1. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. That word repent is what we're talking about. To repent means to turn from your way. It means to turn from your opinion. It means to stop pushing back. It means to submit to Jesus. That's what it means to repent. Even when it's hard to accept what he's saying. And so today I want to challenge you to examine your own heart Maybe even talk it over with a small group or with a mentor or someone in your family. Like, honestly, how do you handle the hard sayings of Jesus?